You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. Hi, I'm Liz Cook, and this is Core Awareness. And I have today with me Anna Verval, who's an RN, CLE. She's a maternal child health nurse and a birth consultant. And she's been a midwifery and doula instructor, a primal uh, educator, UCLA certified lactation educator, and birth photographer. And Anna has a, a years, 22 years of a career working with uh, both as an obstetrical nurse, but also around conscious conception and birth education. And with that information, she has come together, brought this pre- and perinatal psychology and health into a concept called uh, the journey from womb to world. And we have had the opportunity of working together. And I'm so glad you're here, Anna, with me, because I really want people to begin to understand the important work that you're doing and how profound it is in our ability to understand ourselves and our core. And it so um, matches the work I do with the psoas, because when I explore the psoas, I end up in this place of early, very early memories in the very core of a human being. So I'd like to, first of all, welcome you. And then I'd like to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into your career, what led you into this, and and um, let's begin right there. Uh, thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me and um, giving me an opportunity to talk about this. Um, what led to me doing this work is basically all the years that I worked um, first in labor and delivery in clinical setting in a hospital. But when I stopped working in hospital setting and um, I started kind of observing women in childbirth at home, I saw so many things come to the surface um, during the labor and the birth of my clients that I began to ask questions and um, I saw women having um, kind of like a cellular memory to the way they were born. 
And when I saw that a woman would stall in labor or would have fears come up, I, I really um, started asking questions based on what I saw in my practice. And that was like me finding out more about how they were born, you know, what was their story, you know, where their, their fears come from. And it wasn't just the women birthing, but also the partners. You know, I, I remember a birth where I saw a husband going into a, a state of shock and, and fear um, based on his wife being told she was 10 centimeters dilated and she was ready to push. And he grasped, grasped his head the way the forceps would have been placed on his head. So I didn't know that, you know, when I, when I started doing this work 15 years ago or so. And when I had an opportunity to talk to his mother, to ask her, how was your son born? Because I saw all this memory coming up for him, um, even though he had no idea how he was born. She basically told me that when she was 10 centimeters dilated, they had put the forceps on his head and it kind of damaged her cervix and she nearly bled to death. And that was exactly what I saw in, in his re reaction. So in all the years of, of, of helping hundreds of couples give birth, I saw kind of like the answers to questions I didn't know where to where to go and ask. Um, and then um, I met uh, David Chamberlain. Um, he's a pre and prenatal psychologist. And I asked him, I said, David, is it possible that people have memories really stored in their body from, from, from their own birth and even from before? And he had actually just written a book about that um, that had just been published um, back in the days. It was called Babies Remember Birth, but now it's called The Mind of Your Newborn Baby. And he kind of affirmed everything I'd already been, been, been watching over the years. So I became a member of the Association of Pre and Prenatal Psychology. And I just remember how excited I was every other year when we had a conference where I learned from all kinds of therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and researchers that we indeed do have a cellular memory and we even have a memory already from the moment we are conceived so it so just let's became stop like... there let's stop there for a moment because that's you've uh -huh. just hit on something i think for many people it's hard to even fathom so so i'd like to uh, kind of unfold this story by talking about how does the how does the pre and perinatal psychology community gather their information around the cellular memory and even before conception? Well, I think that um, in pre and perinatal psychology, they discovered after doing more than three decades of research that we actually have early prenatal and perinatal sensory capabilities that allow for awareness, memory, and learning. And then they also found out that what's learned during this period, and with perinatal, I mean the birth experience, and prenatal is everything that happens before that. So they found out that what is learned during this period contributes to psychological and personality development, and that any kind of stressful or traumatic pre- or perinatal event and experiences will have a lasting effect on people, and that these lasting effects can be found in an individual's repetitive behavior and that they could identify those. So that is what they discovered after doing, um, as I said, many decades of research in all kinds of different disciplines. We have psychoanalysis, uh, we have hypnosis, we had hypnotherapy, we have primal therapy, um, psycholytic therapy, body-oriented therapy, clinical recession therapy, and holding therapy. And all of these 
um, therapists working in all these different modalities actually all discovered the same thing, that the body holds a memory of our earliest experiences. And um, what was really fascinating is that when pre imperial psychology started kind of linking up with epigenetics and with, um, you know, one of the most well-known researchers in the epigenetic field, which is Bruce Lipton, he's a cellular and developmental biologist, he basically said that um, nurture, what happens to us in our environment, is, is even more important than, you know, what happens to us genetically with the genes, because he says that it's basically the environment which shapes, um, you know, the fetus in utero. So it made complete sense to me when I heard this cellular biologist speak that whatever happened to us already prenatally is something that, that has an effect on us, you know, that we remember. And it plays out, yes. And I, I see that playing out in people's core. Um, when I work with someone one-to-one uh, and, and kind of hold space for, for the psoas to kind of message, which I consider the message of the messenger of the midline, it starts to tell me a story. And um, for example, I'll just give one example for people so they understand what I'm speaking of. So I'm working with a man. I know nothing really about him. He comes to see me for, I don't know what, maybe low back pain or something. And I'm, and I'm just supporting his legs and, and I'm accessing uh, this information. I kind of read the psoas like people read palms or tea leaves. And, <laughs> and as it starts to kind of <clears throat> communicate, what it's communicating is something that I had never actually experienced before, which was um, it, it felt dead to me. Now, I've had sleeping. I've had fearful. I've had very quiet. I've had hiding psoases. But this, this psoas felt the only word I could use was dead. And I said to him, you know, it's as if you were afraid to death. And I said, does that make any sense to you or does that have any meaning to you? And he said, yes, I died um, at birth. Oh, wow. And I was resuscitated. Wow. So that's my connection to this conversation is that it's at birth is showing up in this tissue that I explore called psoas. And, wow. and basically it's emerging out of the very core of a person's being. And it is about their fight or flight and it is about their survival and so it does say if the what the it tells the story, even though I don't know that story, it tells the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so tell me, uh, you did a, a TED talk. I want people to know that. And and so tell us this a little bit about this journey, um, in a in a nutshell, kind of how you've been exploring it from from womb to world. What would you like people to know about that journey? I think um, two things that I find most important. One is that um, when I explore people's pre-imperial experiences with them, we actually are able to discover what kind of behavioral patterns they have in their lives. And these behavioral patterns affect relationships, um, they cause fears, their belief systems. Um, so I found the works to be so incredibly profound because if you can help someone understand that the way they were conceived is causing patterns, you know, the belief system they have based on their conception. If we help people understand that um, the way they came into the world um, creates belief system, fears, and patterns, 
um, I, I feel like I'm helping people um, be able to take off layers of clothing that don't belong to them. Because the way we were marinated inside our mother's wombs, you know, the, the, what, whatever happened in that environment mm -hmm. um, and the amount of time we spent in there, which for most of us is hopefully around, you know, nine months, unless you're very premature, um, you basically have been programmed in the womb. And that's what Mother Nature does. You know, the mother's perception and attitude about her environment um, in which the baby then, of course, develops, is translated into epigenetic control, which modifies the fetus to fit in the world the mother perceives. So let's say that you had a mom whose husband passed away when she was four months pregnant with you. Um, as a fetus, you are being marinated in your mother's grief. And, and what I found a lot with people that had a mom who experienced a loss, whether it was an older sibling or a husband, you know, nowadays with young women becoming widows because their husband's gone to war and don't come back, um, or, or her losing one of her parents, you're basically marinated in the flavors of grief. And what you're unable to do inside your mother's womb is to, you know, try to help your mother or support your mother or make her happy. You come out and you, you feel um, the, the tremendous need of wanting to make people happy around you. And you're also incredibly sensitive to sensing when people around you are sad. Now, it might be a beautiful trait to be able to help people and sense that, but it can also be a burden. So the work I do with people is to kind of help unburden them uh, from the loads they carry or from the things that are in a backpack that they carry without even knowing where it came from. Yes. Because most of us were given an, an inheritance from our parents, from whatever went on around the time of conception, around the time that we marinated in the womb and developed, and around the time of our birth. And, and what I found uh, is that 95% of people uh, walking around this planet today have no idea how much they have been affected by um, situations, circumstances, um, already before taking their very first breath. Yes, and I, I find that that very first breath is also an assumption. Um, so that how we arrive and even when the cord is cut or the conditions in which one takes the first breath sets a tone, a metabolic tone, a muscular tone, a skeletal, as well as just a consciousness around the assumption of what breathing is or what it is to be on earth. So the journey for me shows up in a very physical way. One of the ways it shows up um, is through uh, neck issues associated with what I've come to find out is how the cord is around the baby's neck. And one of the things that we're going to be doing a workshop together um, that I want to explore is that I work with what's called the ignition of birth. And what I see what people's physicality of their body does, let alone their emotional feelings around it, is uh, an expression of almost unwinding that cord so that they can just unravel and open up. And yeah. it's a very physical response in the body. It's not really cathartic. It's not really an emotional story. The the organism itself wants to unravel these patterns. 
Yeah. Well, if you just look at now, you mentioned what we call an, a nuchal cord pattern, meaning a cord around the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, just imagine, just visualize your mother is in labor with you and she's contracting and the womb is tightening. And because the womb is tightening, it's pushing you down towards the cervix so it can start opening so that you can come through the birth canal and be born. But if you have a very tight cord around your neck, then the way you're going to be imprinted during that journey is that moving forward is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Because every time you moved forward, you were pushed forward, you had a feeling of dying because the cord was, you know, stretched so thin that, um, you know, oxygenation didn't really take place during the contraction. You know, you, you start to be reoxygenated again when the contraction eases up so that the oxygen flow comes again through the cord. But every contraction that's kind of pushing you forward, down more, is making you feel like you're dying. So what we see with people is that they feel paralyzed in a way. They, they need to make a step forward. They, they want to move forward, but they can't. They kind of hold back. Another thing that we see with people that have had court incidents is that they absolutely do not like wearing scarves, ties, or turtleneck sweaters. Yes. Because anything around the neck is going to bring up that cellular memory of how uncomfortable that was. But then if you look at a behavioral pattern, if these people are being um, put under pressure, then they feel that they're being choked. Mm-hmm. So you see that if people understand, I had a, a funny story maybe I can share with you, but I was in a taxi in Amsterdam on my way to the airport not long ago. And the taxi chauffeur, I could see that he had to wear a uniform and he had to have the button closed and a tie but he didn't. He had everything loose. So, you know, a lot of people, when I travel, ask me, what do you do? For, you know, why were you in Amsterdam? What are you doing? And I say, well, I talk about and I teach about the long-term patterns of conception through birth. And he looked at me and said, wow, that's interesting. He said, well, I was a purple baby when I was born. I said, really? Why? He said, well, I had the cord around my neck. And I said, well, I can kind of tell you did because I can see that you don't tolerate having your top button closed and you don't really like wearing that tie, do you? And he started laughing. He said, no, you could see that just because of that. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's very normal behavior for people that have had a very tight nuchal cord. And then he said, you know, I'm kind of concerned about it because next week my daughter is getting married and I have to walk her down the aisle in a suit with a tie and I won't be able to loosen my tie until she's, she's done with the wedding. <laughs> and then it was such an incredible opportunity for me in one short taxi ride to explain to him where his feelings came from about being choked. And then I said, you know, for you to walk your daughter down the aisle is going to be such a metaphor of coming through the birth canal moving forward Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't want it to have you pass out. So what I'd like you to practice is just, you know, try try to tighten the, 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 um, the tie a little bit every day and just visualize that the cord is is loose, that you can get breath. Because I think when you have an understanding of where a, a behavioral pattern comes from, then you can transform it. You can change it. And, and I find a lot of times when I help people get a little bit more awareness about why they behave the way they do, um, a, 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 a lot of the problem is already being solved just through the awareness. Yes. 
agree. So it was such a fun ride, you know, and I have so many of these little, you know, meetings with people really briefly that they always tell me their story. And I go, well, if you were cesarean born, are these your issues? Or if your child was an induction, do they like to be late? Are they ever on time? You know, so and people go, oh, my God, you just explained my child's behavior. I'm like, well, if you understand what happened to your child at birth and how they perceived it, then for you to deal with that and tell your child, I understand you don't like to come when I tell you, you need to be ready. So, and this is because of what happened at your birth. Then again, we can transform so much. So if people only knew how important it is for them to know what happened before they took their very first breath and what happened, as you said, when they take their first breath, is that first breath a breath that was done by us, the medical system, that we have to oxygenate babies, that we have to put a mask on them, that we have to suction them when the head was at the perineum, but it wasn't really fully born yet because that creates its own pattern and imprint. You know, so I, I find the work I do amazing. I find it incredibly rewarding. And then I think what I find even more incredible is with all this information that we have now from the field of pre and perinatal psychology and the field of epigenetics, I really understood that if we educate parents long before they're going to conceive, um, we would be able to give birth to a new humanity that can be born without all of these imprints and, and, and you know, negative imprints and, and stressors. And, and we could, you know, birth babies that are in much better health. We can birth babies that are connected in their body from day one, you know, that weren't anesthetized at birth, uh, coming through mothers that were receiving drugs in labor. So it's the potential it holds to use this information in, in helping parents understand that if, if they are really going about this journey with consciousness, they can truly help birth a new humanity. Wow. I so agree with you. I... Um... I think that people, these some of these core issues that, that we're looking at, I'd like to go into them a little more um, in terms of just, because I think it's fascinating for people. So, so tell us a little bit about what you see when a baby is induced or when they are a C-section or maybe they've lived part of their very beginning uh, days in an incubator. I just, just a few more stories. To, so people kind of get even more of a flavor of what that, what, what are you seeing? What do you know about that? Um, well, what I hear, um, you know, first of all, let's start off with if you were lucky enough to have had a normal vaginal birth, meaning your mother went into labor when you were ready, when you as the baby initiated it. Um, you know, children that are born like that, if they've had a good pre and perinatal, prenatal experience as well, you have a, a healthier sense of self and getting ahead in life and you feel more in control of your own life. Um, you tend to be a bit more optimistic and a tendency to become more successful because you don't really anticipate many people holding you back. If you, let's say, were born, and I, I heard that so often, um, that, that people tell me, my mom's legs were closed because the doctor hadn't arrived yet, you know? Mm -hmm. um, just imagine, and actually I just um, <clears throat> finished doing a process workshop in New York uh, last week, and we had um, a psychiatrist in our workshop who took, um, who took it because she wanted to explore her pre- and perinatal imprints. And she had um, severe pain in in a part of her lower back, a little bit on the side. <clears throat> and what we discovered 
from her birth when we helped her through re-experiencing the birth was that as she was ready to be born and her body went completely in the turn and the movement a baby makes when it's really ready to come out, um, the doctor wasn't there yet. So the nurse who was there had closed her mother's legs, but because the contractions came so involuntary, they had also drugged the mother in order for her not to feel any contractions. Yeah. So here is this, you know, adult psychiatrist on the table. And as the little baby, she completely went still, no movement whatsoever. And then as we tried to tell her that, you know, the legs are open and she could come out now, she was still not moving. And then I saw from, from another movement that the nurse must have pressed really, really hard on what we call the mother's fundus, the top of the uterus, to kind of help push the baby out. And that was exactly the spot in her back where she has had pain. Wow. So you see an experience like that. And then, you know, I ask her because then for me, it's interesting. I don't work with the body. That's your forte and the person I was teaching with. But I look at the psychology and the imprints. So I could read in her behavior that she in life feels that she's being held back by a force that comes from outside, but you know, being held back from an outside force. Another thing is that what these people develop in life is an incredibly strong response or strong reaction to unjust treatment. So if you see anybody else around you being treated unjustly, you will jump up and say, that is not fair because your cellular memory remembers how unfair it was when you were treated that unjustly. Mm. Yeah. So if we have people that are induced, um, which is really interesting when I teach in the United States and I want to start at 10 o'clock, I tell people, the organizers do that. I want to start at nine 30. When I teach in the Netherlands where most people were born at home, which means we were born and allowed to come in our own timing as babies. When I say I want to start at 10, People show up one minute to 10. So I looked at that, you know, after a couple of years teaching, you know, in all mm-hmm. different countries. And I really realized that when you are born in your own timing, your sense of timing is much better. You will show up on time. When you were born by an induction, meaning that you had to come before you were ready. We see in those people that they have a sense of being rushed. They're very, very resentful to authority figures dictating when they should show up. Mm-hmm. They're usually quite rebellious and they're notorious for always being late because in a way they are trying to arrive in their own timing yes so that's just as simple as being induced but what we see in the long-term behavioral patterns is that people that were induced so they were deprived of being able to come into the world when they felt ready these people have more trouble with beginnings than with endings in life So they almost need like external motivation to get started on doing things. They're not really very self-motivated, but when you want to tell them what to do and how to start, they resent you for telling them (laughs) what to do to start the project. So I had a young, I have a young woman who works with me and she's pretty uh, somatically aware and she has memory of being induced uh and, um, uh, from from a very uh, interesting perspective, she said um, this that when she's kind of entered that sphere and kind of having that memory, she said she remembers a kind of chaos or chaotic sensation. In other words, something started to happen that she wasn't involved with. She wasn't 
she, she wasn't told. She, she wasn't was asked. Included. She wasn't yeah. included. Yeah. And it was happening whether she wanted to or not. Yes. And and so out of that actually comes for her a feeling of that there isn't time for me. There isn't yeah. like there isn't no one has the time for me. Yeah. And yeah. so it's an interesting way of seeing it also as that some of the resistance is about wait a minute. I need to have a sense of what my timing is. Where yeah. where am I in space and time, and yeah. and how am I included in what's happening? And I want to be included in what's yeah. happening, yeah. and and so exploring this with her, um, it's very it's very interesting to watch how the body wants to make what I the way I work is that the very core of your being is the biointelligence of the organism. And that because we're self-writing and self-organizing, we our organism actually knows how to become. How to become fully, like, kind of like a flower. It knows how to be lush and to be fully blossomed and to be fully who it is. And mm -hmm. so even though we do have imprints, there's also this force in us to kind of fulfill our destiny. And, and in that comes some of these resistance, I would say, or reactions too. But that when we access our core in embryology, you know, there's, there's the ability for the system to uh, regenerate or innovate. And so it, it kind of can fully become who it needs to be. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's where the, the marriage of our two works is so interesting. So a lot of my work is about people accessing that and allowing that to kind of dissolve the patterns. Yeah. You know, that this greater force of knowing is within yeah. us. And you know the the um, what I found most fascinating when I when I heard you know Bruce Lipton speak about nurture versus nature, um, he also said um, consciousness can override nurture and nature. Yes, meaning that that's why I I have no problem taking people back to their their birth or even to their conception imprint, even if it wasn't a good imprint, because understanding what happened can allow you to unravel the patterns that you are kind of creating in your life in order to cope, to survive, um, belief systems that can kind of shatter and you go, oh, maybe I wasn't wanted, you know, by my dad. Um, how is that affecting relationships with men? I always feel like I'm being rejected by men. Um, you know, if your conception was an accident, you're very accident prone. We see that a lot of times. But, um, <clears throat> you know, you can you can help people... Um, I don't know, but reprogram, you know, reprogram and say, I wanted to be here. I chose to be here as a soul. So how am I going to deal with this? You know, and you of course have to step away from being a victim. And, and that's what I tell people, you know, the, the, there's an expiration date to blaming our parents for what happened to us. You know, you have to say, okay, these were my circumstances. This is what happened with my mom when she was pregnant with me. Um, now that I know this, how can I work with this? But you know, most people don't know where to go. Um, another very interesting thing is that most therapists don't know about pre and perinatal psychology. So they talk about what happens to you later in life. But what the pre and perinatal psychologists are saying is that the imprint that has been created in, in our pre and perinatal time becomes the blueprint of our life. And that anything that happens in our life afterwards is merely like a red thread that keeps bringing us back to our blueprint. So looking at that, 
I'm looking at the wisdom of a soul that's going to create opportunities in life for us to be put in touch with that blueprint again so that we can overcome it and transform it. Yeah. So it's, and that is so fascinating that people come to me and they talk about what's going on in their life. And I can trace it way back to either conception or what happened to them in the womb or what happened to them around the time of birth, you know, or the, or the, or the, the time right after birth, the postnatal period. And giving people those insights is helping relationships flourish because a lot of times people in an intimate relationship have no idea how they're playing out um, being each other's obstetrician, I, I call it, you know. Uh -huh. I can see that. <clears throat> so that's just fascinating. When, when people understand what has happened, if their six foot five husband was actually a two and a half pound preemie when he was born, and he spent three months in isolation, in the, in the, or not in isolation, but in a little box, Right. Right then a woman understands that that's a man that doesn't like to be cuddled because every time you're going to go and want to cuddle up with him without telling him, you know, I, I, I'd like to cuddle with you, they're going to kind of pull back because every time they were touched when they were little, it was to do something painful, unexpected or, you know, unpleasant, right? So you need to know what your prenatal, pre and perinatal imprints are I think when we start your relationship, because you just, you're going to find out where you're going to trigger each other. And it's also an incredible opportunity to know this, to make it a more conscious part of your relationship, to see, whoa, I see that these parts of you are still very affected by your early experiences. How can we, you know, incorporate that in our relationship and us working through these issues with each other, you know? That's it, yeah. It also shows up in a very physical way. There's a, a book called Scared Sick that talks about the birth experience in relationship to setting the metabolic process so that many diseases that we're focused on as adults actually are come go back to the uh, fight or flight or what we would call the sympathetic response which sets then a certain metabolic process in, in gear. And, and so the importance of knowing that is also, as you mentioned before, a social, cultural understanding how important birth is. And that birth is not really seen as a, a moment that is about a soul entering the earth. It's about yeah. getting the job done. And yeah. if we, if I think the consciousness that we're bringing is not only on a very personal, but on, as you said, a larger a species event. That oh, it's, at, yeah, that's a big piece of it. You know, and another thing um, which I found so fascinating is that we, we now have what we call the stress epidemic of the 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. um, they say that, that um, stress-related illnesses in our culture are actually an outcome of our what we call current third-stage birth practices, meaning that for, for decades in the United States, we actually removed the baby from the mother and separated them. The mother went to postpartum and the baby went to newborn nursery. But what happens at the end of a natural birth experience is that the hormones that the mother releases that of course are also going to benefit and affect a newborn baby, that mother and baby coming together and having skin-to-skin -skin contact is what's going to soothe these hormones that have been released towards the end, which are the fight-or-flight hormones that we yes. release actually quite a bit of. So what they're looking at now is that our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, 
which kind of mediate long-term stress responses and immune function, is actually permanently being misset because of the high stress hormones continuing to stay in our bodies when babies are separated from their mothers. So just imagine what that has done to, to generations of people walking on our planet now. They have no idea how much they've still been affected by their birth experience. Because if I ask people, um, <clears throat> we have now a feeling of being disconnected. There's a lot of people that have depression, substance abuse, eating disorder, childhood and adult suicides, which they also trace back Amazingly enough, when they researched childhood suicides, the way the children committed suicide was very much related to the way they were born. If they chose hanging, it was because they had a cord accident at birth. If they chose medication, it was because they came in the world drugged. And if it was a really instrumental type delivery, forceps or vacuum or cesarean, then they would choose instrumental type suicides Yeah, with guns. Um, but if we look at what's going on in our culture today with aggression, violence and skin problems, asthma, asthma is also very birth related for a lot of people because of the early clamping and cutting of the cord. Um, you know, imagine how we can improve the health of, of humanity by just birthing the way Mother Nature intended for birth to be. Yes. So let's go to cesareans. Mm. And I... And, and this is always a touchy subject for people because women, you know, want to have natural birth. They end up with cesarean. Other women plan to have a cesarean because it's convenient. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a culturally uh, touchy subject for many people, especially if they chose not to but ended up. And so there's the, not only the disappointment uh, of not having a, 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 the birth they they planned, yeah, yeah. but but I do want to talk about it because we do need to understand how it, it affects humanity, especially when we know that doctors are choosing cesarean for many different kinds of births simply because of the insurance and the protection it provides. If they give a cesarean, they're not they've done everything they possibly can for that baby. Right. Whereas right. if they let the mother naturally birth and something happens they're responsible so can we let's go there for a little bit because i think it plays out in what i do tremendously with core awareness okay now first of all I, i'd like to say that having worked in in you know as a high-risk labor and delivery nurse for for many years um, there are definitely moms and babies for whom cesareans are life-saving yes um however not being from this culture, not being born in the United States, but coming from the Netherlands, where we used to birth at home, where we had better outcomes, uh, lower infant maternal mortality, morbidity rates, just because of the fact that we use midwives as the prime care provider for healthy women that are going to have babies. Um, you need to understand, or people here in America need to understand, that if you choose an obstetrician to help you give birth, um, the chance that you are allowed to give birth is very slim. You, the, the chance that you are being delivered by a system is far more likely. Um, you know, you, you're basically hiring a trained surgeon to try to do a normal birth. And, you know, there are people that say that's asking a pediatrician to babysit your healthy two-year-old, mm -hmm. you know. So if we look at birth, then, then what we need to understand here is that we need to look for midwives to help women give birth that would like to have a natural birth experience. Um, but then again, if you're in a hospital, 
I also think that women don't understand that if you get tied to a bed, hooked up to a monitor, you're told you can't eat and drink no more, you're getting an IV, you can't move, your, your pain tolerance is going down, you know, you, you can't really deal with contractions. So a lot of women that give birth or like to give birth in a hospital setting are, are a little bit intimidated by the things that we might do to them that lead to a cascade of intervention you know so there's a lot of cesareans that i have personally even had to assist because that was part of my job um that i know this woman if she would have birthed at home or if she would have birthed even with a midwife in a hospital setting this would have never ended up in a cesarean so you know i I do want to say that and i know that there there might be a large group of women listening to this that that know that they fall in this category you know that despite the fact they prepared themselves despite the fact they had a doula they still ended up with that cesarean um and that's difficult you know but then i look at everything else that kind of unfolded around the journey um which is what i help people integrate what was the soul's experience of the cesarean and what is the silver lining around what what still feels like a rather dark cloud and there's a lot of people that when they start doing that process they understand what the reason was that they ended up with the c-section in in the larger picture right yes if we look at cesareans um for babies um you know we have different categories like you already said we have the planned cesarean the woman that doesn't even want to go into labor and she scheduled it so it's for convenience we have the cesareans now in large numbers for breech babies yes because we are no longer teaching residents how to deliver breech babies it's going to be the, the ob's that know how to do breech deliveries are going to be extinct in another decade or so so all breeches if we can't turn them with an external version um are going to end up being a cesarean um then we have the the labor induced cesareans meaning that a woman is induced and a cervix wasn't quite ready and then she needs an epidural and then the labor stalls so we have failure to progress cesareans and then we have the which we call the labor cesareans meaning the baby did get quite a bit of benefit from the labor starting either naturally or at least having had a number of hours of labor you know and then we have the emergency cesareans you know where something suddenly goes wrong and then it becomes a life saving procedure for either the mom or the baby or both um but if we look at the patterns of cesareans um we see that um people that have been born by cesarean have a tendency to feel helpless when they're under stress um because when it was most stressful there was nothing they could do to partake yes there's a kind of helplessness um they're very often extremely sensitive to being interrupted you know because they were kind of doing good on their own and suddenly you know the the the, the you know the, the the belly is opened and they're being pulled out um we see that cesarean born babies might either have a cuddle hunger we call it or an inordinate need for touch um because if you don't go through the the birth canal you don't get all the squeezing and activation of parts in the body that need to be activated and and squeezed through a birth canal then you might become someone that's really sensitive to wanting to get touched uh and touched a lot and and they need rather rough touch you know like really strong firm touch um cesarean patterns like the behavioral patterns um they might be people that feel that they can't do things right if they feel it was their fault that their mother ended up with a cesarean um a lot of people say in their language a lot i can't or i'm stuck i i i'm just stuck in life i can't move forward 
you know, that's like you're, you're stuck in labor and you, you didn't move forward and you had to be rescued. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those are just the behavioral patterns. You can feel that other people rob you of your power. You know, you're, you're doing well, you're in your power and then suddenly, you know, things happen and it stops you, you know? So, um, they're usually pretty willful and headstrong people and they might have boundary issues. Either they're extremely sensitive to observing boundaries, their own and, and the boundaries of others, or they don't at all. Meaning that they just jump into your bubble and have no, no understanding that it doesn't feel good. You know, that you suddenly enter someone else's bubble. Yeah. As That's I, as interesting. I, yeah. So you have all kinds of different behavioral patterns based on, on even just being born by cesarean. A lot of times there are people that also might have a difficulty completing projects, finishing things because they did not get to finish their birth. You know, we see that more with the forceps and vacuum babies than with cesarean babies, but, but still you, you have no memory of finishing it, ending it. You know, yes, and, and, yes. and with cesareans, you're usually separated from your mother. We see a much higher um, number of people having asthma or asthma-related issues after being born by cesarean because your lungs that were filled with amniotic fluid didn't really get squeezed out coming through the birth canal. So you right away were suctioned. So the first thing that kind of comes into your throat is a little tube suctioning out all this amniotic fluid. And that's being done while you're already having been separated from your cord. So the oxygenation that you relied on coming from your mother is abruptly taken away. And that sets a pattern of feeling stressed when your lungs are still wet. And, and it's really interesting that when they did research and, and when they hypnotized asthmatic children that all had, um, you know, premature cutting of the cord, when they, in hypnosis, gave them a different birth scenario where the cord was allowed to pulsate until the babies were breathing so well on their own that the placenta no longer needed to send oxygenated blood to the baby, about 75% of these children no longer needed to use their inhalers. So we see that a lot of asthma is also stress-related and that the stress comes from how we were born and whether our cord was um, clamped and cut immediately after birth or not. Wow. So let's move. I mean, this is fascinating. And obviously, I could, I could listen to you all day long. And we are going to do... Well, we're going to have four days together. Four days together. <laughs> and we are going to explore this. So people who yeah. listen to this, I hope you'll sign up for our workshop and... And if you've missed our workshop because it happened this year and you're listening to another time period, I'm sure um, there'll be other opportunities to, to connect with us. But we are going to explore it. And, and uh, I want to take it in with our last time into some of the, the ways that we're working with two things. We're working with our, our own children and how we're looking at our families. And I, I know when I talk about birth, people often as women, uh, as well as men, will start talking about their children's birth. Yeah. Um, and the dads will start talking about their children's birth. And of course, dads are feel particularly, men feel, I think, particularly helpless. Um, and yet they play a very vital role. Their birth is playing out as yes. well. Yeah. Um, and and women, you know, it's not only them giving birth and what happens, but how their birth affected them. And so you're looking mother. at generations as well. So as we're looking in the work I do, I go back to great-grandmother. Mm -hmm. Because if we look at cellular memory and we look at epigenetics, just imagine that you are already 
um, consciousness in the egg of your mother when your mother is in your grandmother's in her in her mother's womb. So we're looking at what we now call um, the epigenetic inheritance that we even receive from our grandparents. And we receive it both from our grandmothers and grandfathers. So that is even more fascinating. Um, and, and for me, that is such a confirmation that the native people, uh, no matter where in the world, were so right when they say that what we do to our generation now will affect the next seven generations. Yes. Because you look back and you go, you know what, it's absolutely true. Because what studies now show is that um, you know, new insights of behavioral epigenetics have shown that traumatic experiences in our past, but also in our recent ancestors' past, leave molecular scars that adhere to our DNA. Yes. So what has happened to your grandmother and in her childhood is either giving us the epigenetic expression of anxiety or, let's say, resilience, depending on how your grandmother perceived what happened to her, you know, in her life. So it is just, it's just so incredibly fascinating to, to just imagine the fact that if we really want to improve the health and well-being and the connectivity of people on this planet, it actually all starts at conception and preconception. Because um, preconception, two months leading up to the moment of the, cell, the cells coming together, the sperm and the egg, um, we already see that the woman is affecting that egg. So at the time when the genes come together and it has to choose which genes to activate and which genes not, the genes that are going to be activated are going to completely have to do with how the mother perceived her environment. So what I have tried to teach for so many years now is conscious conception and the importance of how we prepare for that physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, you know, and take people on a journey um, of learning how to offer your child the best possible chance in life and that is by exploring your own past of course looking at your own health and well-being but you know often for men which i think are so often forgotten you know their role how important it is um this research showed that if men even reflect on the way they were parented it will produce happier children wow you know, so the way a man makes his partner feel, his wife feel, you know, and of course in same-sex partners it would be the other, the, the significant other, right, has such an incredible importance on what's actually going to happen at the moment of conception, which genes are going to be activated. Because what, uh, what they say is that what a mother eats, drinks, feels, and experiences in her environment leading up to the moment of conception has an impact on her offspring's future health, intelligence, and entire genetic manifestation. So just imagine, imagine that. You know, what people, a responsibility and what a what great yes, possibility. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Yes. But you know what? It should be our responsibility because you are bringing forth another life. And we really need to do that. Thinking about, you know, I don't want my child to carry my unresolved issues. And that I find, I think, the most... Um, satisfying work when I help people um, off offload the inheritances they were given, the beliefs, the imprints, and go, you know, you don't really want to pass this on to your child. So it has to stop with us, with our generation. Yes, yes, the buck stops here. Yes, yeah, and and it, I think it heals uh, generations going back as well as yes. going forward. I I feel like um, there's a a profound healing that takes place when someone does this awareness work and brings this forward. So talk a little bit about men and how, what, what 
role their birth plays in the outcome of their children or their their wife's experience. You mentioned the man who touched his head, that that spurred that on. Is there any other stories you want to share with people, for the men who are listening to this, how important what they're doing? Well, the most important is, is, is the child also wanted by the father, you know, and then is the, 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 the woman carrying the baby, is she supported by him, yes? Mm-hmm. Because we now know that we have conception imprint, we have an implantation imprint, we have a discovery imprint, meaning that you will remember what your parents felt and thought when they discovered they were pregnant with you. So that's yes. huge. Yes. Now, in, in a very simple way, um, you know, a girlfriend of mine wanted to organize a surprise birthday party for her husband when he turned 50, but he was very unwanted at conception. So she had done a lot of work, you know, to prepare that room and have God knows how many people sitting there waiting for him. And the minute he walked in the door and everybody yelled, surprise, he wasn't happy. <laughs> and she was quite upset with his reaction to all her hard work. And I was like, but listen, don't you understand? Your husband was not wanted. So when his parents discovered his pregnancy, you know, with him, the pregnancy with him, it was not a very happy surprise. You know, it was mm-hmm. the first imprint of not, not needing, not, not wanting to be seen. So a man also needs to explore how did he get here? You know, what was his journey? What does he pass on in his belief system? Was there any fear of childbirth? If a, if a husband has had a difficult birth himself, then he needs to explore that so that that difficult birth is not going to affect their baby coming into the world. Because if I learned one thing of being in a delivery room for many, many years is that fear is the most contagious energy in the room. If there's one person that's fearful, everybody is affected by that. Yes. So we need to explore our fears. We need to explore what kind of model of care we want to choose for the birth of our child. You know, what I hear a lot is that there are women that say, I so want to do it at home, but my husband just don't, doesn't want to go there. He's yes, afraid. yes. Mm-hmm. And I hear that and I go, you know, it's really not fair towards your baby that dad isn't willing to do the work, right? Mm-hmm. Can I talk to him? Because I want to know where that fear comes from. Fear is learned behavior. So if we can explore what was the reason for him to be fearful, what was the belief system, what was the experience he had, and we talk about it in detail, I say, but you understand that this was your experience or this was your brother's birth or this was your nephew or your great niece's birth because it's people that you don't even know, you know, they hear the story through someone and someone and someone about how a birth ended up in, a, in you know, not, not, not the kind of birth people wanted. Um, so you need to talk about, but a, a man needs to be just as willing to do all of this exploratory work as, as, as a woman carrying the baby. Because the way the baby develops in utero has so much to do with how supportive the father is, you know, to the mother and to the whole process and to the birth. Wow. This has been great. So let's, uh, we have about five minutes. So I want you to to, uh, have that time to say anything else you're you're thinking of, uh, of, what what do you want to bring forward? To me, the work that I do with core awareness, that's why I call my work core awareness, not so as work, is because I found that consciousness is the key to unraveling most yes. anything. Yes. And and that's why we're coming together to teach together is that that the simple somatic explorations allow the intelligence of the organism to do the unraveling. So I thought, wow, what a beautiful combination to bring your information 
into the work that I have spontaneously started to do because when you go, when you access your physicality, you access your story. Yeah. And, and then, you know, there's ways to allow that energy to move. And when it moves, things open up, my, the mind opens up, the consciousness improves even more in allowing um, what I would say to go back into the embryonic state of receptivity. We become more porous in which rather than being defended, the organism can begin to take in new information, new nourishment, which is yeah. what I experience most people who are under stress need, is they need the organism to feel nourished, to be able to thrive the same way if you're in the arms of your mother and your mother and father want you and you're loved and you have the blessing of of mother's milk, you're you're in that zone of nourishment. The whole world is that zone. Yeah. You know, nature is that zone. And we have that access, even if our personal experiences were not that. And it was David Chamberlain, uh, who I agree, I had get, I also got to know him. And, and he was one of the people who brought that forward, that, that, you know, life on earth is kind of a school, right? It's the, yeah. the school of life. And so consciousness is whole yeah. as we enter this realm. And so we, the wholeness is part of who and what we are. And we can access that wholeness. Yeah. So that's my piece I want to bring in is that no matter how fragmented this experience has been for a person, wholeness is who and what we are ultimately. The cell is whole. Yeah. And so it's being imprinted, but then it can be imprinted by new information and it can be allowed to respond to the environment in a way that it's nourished and thrives. So I'm so excited that we're going to get to work and explore this together. And I'd like you to say whatever you need to say or would like to tell our audience. Um, <clears throat> what, what I found was really important after doing these workshops I have lots of people that want to call their mothers, you know, to find out more about what happened because most people don't know the story of their conception. They don't know what happened in the womb or their birth. Um, we have to do that in a way that we are not making mothers feel bad because we have to understand that in the United States, um, birth was very medicalized and that women, you know, several decades ago were not given an option to have choices, you know. Um, so we have to start off realizing that we can't blame and we also need to learn about the fact that I think that we in our generation chose to become more conscious of the imprints and, and the inheritance we were given so that we could transform it and therefore become more clear vehicles for the next generation to come through because that generation um, doesn't have 50 years to explore <laughs> themselves before they figure out who they are. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I see it as, as a responsibility that we have, that we took upon us um, to learn about this and, and, and to not look back in time and blame, um, but to use everything that has happened to us as an opportunity to grow. Because I really think that globally it's meant to happen in order for us to move to a higher consciousness, you know. And, and unfortunately, we still live in a planet or on a planet, I should say, where pain is for most people still the motivator to start doing their spiritual work. Yes. And disconnection. And, you know, um, I think that I would like to go from a world where we're merely surviving to a world where we're going to be thriving. And I think that... Um, uh, yeah, I, I find that the most important and to, to contribute a little bit in, in the work I do to help people understand that. 
Thank you so much, Anna. It was a delight to spend time with you. And I look forward to our journey together. In October, yes. yes. I'll see yes. you in Missouri, right? No, uh, no we're going to be in Kansas. Oh, Kansas. You're going to fly into to Kansas City, which is in Missouri. It's on the edge of, oh, of uh, Kansas. Yeah. But we're actually in Kansas. We're in Lawrence, Kansas. Lawrence, Kansas. And that's called the Heartland of America. Oh, is so, it wonderful? Yeah, so we're going to the heartland. <laughs> and we'll do some, some core awareness work together. Yes, yes. Liz, thank you. Thanks thank for giving you. me an opportunity to teach with you and to uh, be able to speak with you now. Thank you so much. Talk okay. soon. Okay, bye-bye.